and I love looking at the prophetic fulfillment, the practical application, how Jesus Christ is portrayed in all of it. He is the, he's at the center of it. He's at the heart of these divine appointments. And so we, we went through the season of Passover, the week of unleavened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the, the, the seven days following Passover. Uh, last Sunday, we were able to celebrate Christ as the first fruits from among the dead and in perfect fulfillment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the first fruits, and that is his hope. That is our hope as he promises to bring a greater harvest in the future so that those who are in Christ will also be resurrected from the dead. So the resurrection, the day of first fruits, it, it all points us to the day of resurrection in the end, at the end of the age, when we too will get bodies like Jesus, when we too will be glorified to be like him. And so we've looked at these appointed days and these appointed feasts, and, and today I thought it would be interesting to kind of take up a little bit of a detour, um, because what we have now is that on, on uh, Resurrection Sunday, which was a week from, from today, we began doing something that the Lord commanded us to do in the book of Leviticus. He said, you are to begin counting the omer. We talked a little bit about that last week. And what is the omer? The omer is simply a unit of measurement. It's like getting your measuring cup out, for those of you who like to cook and like to bake or whatever, and you pour a cup of flour and you mix it in and all that kind of stuff. Well, an omer is just simply a unit of measurement that was basically enough grain to feed a man or feed an individual for a day. Okay, we first see this picture of the omer in uh, the Exodus story as the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and they began to complain and grumble to Moses like they most often did. They're like, why did you bring us out here in the desert just to kill us, just to die? We don't have anything to drink. We don't have any food to eat. Well, oh, by the way, God rained down bread from heaven, which was called what? Manna. And that's when we first are introduced to the omer. He said, you take an omer for each individual in your home. Basically, take enough bread that's going to feed you for this day. But don't get greedy, because if you try to take more, what's going to happen to it? It's going to rot. Maggots are going to fill it up. And so it was a test of faith for the Israelites to just take enough to get them through the day. And then we come and we see Jesus as he comes and teaches us how to pray. And what does he say? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And so in this counting of the Omer, there's this beautiful picture of God's his provision for us. But I want to paint a picture for you today because in between the day of the counting of the Omer, which is the day of first fruits, to the very next feast on the calendar, which is coming up here in, a, in just over 40 days or so, okay, it's the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And you were to count seven weeks from the day of first fruits and until the Feast of Weeks, and on the 50th day, which Pentecost means what? 50, you would celebrate the next feast on God's calendar or the next divine appointment on his calendar. So there's a connection, there's a link that runs from first fruits all the way to Pentecost. Now, if you, if you, fa if you rewind all the way back in history to that very first Exodus, what were the children of Israel doing between Passover and Pentecost? Does anybody know? They're wandering through very rough and wilderness areas. And God's about to bring them to a place and another appointed place and at another appointed time. On the day of Pentecost, he brought them to his holy mountain, otherwise known as Mount Sinai. And so I thought it would be interesting because this is something that's of interest to me. And for those of you that have been around me long enough, you know that um, 
my style of teaching, maybe a little bit more, uh, maybe more of a teaching style as opposed to a preaching style. But part of that is because I feel like that one of my, my number one passions is apologetics. Does anybody know what apologetics is? Apologetics is not just knowing what you believe, which is important. We need to know what we believe as Christians. But apologetics takes it a step further. It is what? Why do you believe? And that's a great question I'm going to ask you today. Why do you believe? Do you just take my word for it? Take your parents' word for it? Grandparents? What makes the faith of Christianity any different than any other religion? What makes the Bible unique as opposed to all the other religious texts out in the world today? And guys, I think that one of the tragedies of the modern church is that somewhere along the way we stopped discipling people, which means that we stopped teaching them the scriptures, which means that they stopped getting the answers, sufficient answers for the questions that they had, and then they go off to secular schools and universities as impressionable 18, 19, 20-year-old young men and women, only knowing basically what their parents have told them or maybe what they've heard their preacher say on Sunday morning or maybe they've learned a little bit in Sunday school, whatever, and they get into these classes and you've got professors whose number one goal is to destroy the faith of those children. And then four years later, they walk out and they say, what, I don't believe anymore. It's been proven to me that the Bible is false. It's just a collection of myths or there's contradictions all through the Bible or it can't be trusted. And guys, this is one of the biggest problems that we have in the church today is that there are so many people who just do not have sufficient answers for their questions. And that's what apologetics really comes down to. It's giving people answers. Why do you believe? Because I'm going to tell you something, guys. Yes, our relationship with God is predicated upon one thing faith. But faith does not defy logic. Faith does not defy history. Faith is not in contradiction to science. You understand what I'm saying? Now, there's only a point that you can reach to take history and archaeology and science and prophecy and all of these reasons that we do believe the Bible is true. That that can only take you so far, and then you still have to exercise what? Faith, right? Faith transcends those things. Ultimately, I understand that, and I hope you understand that. But it doesn't mean that those evidences and those proofs of our faith aren't important. They are very important. And today, I thought it would be interesting to take you on a journey of what I believe is a new discovery. I believe that there are things happening in the field of archaeology today that are beginning to reveal to us, God is beginning to bring to our attention some evidences, scientific evidences, archaeological, historical evidences that undergird and support and give validity to our faith. And this is very important. It's very important for you, and it's very important for me. So I want to take you on this journey that I believe you'll find very interesting, okay? We're talking about discovering the real Mount Sinai. You say, well, I thought there was already a Mount Sinai. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today, okay? So what we're talking about, number one, is the absolute authority of Scripture. Is science to be 
elevated above Scripture? Is it? Absolutely not. Science is fallible. Things that we thought were true 100 years ago, we look up today and say, how could we have ever believed that? Because science is gradually and always what? It's always changing. It's always evolving. We're always learning new information. And so we're limited in our scope. So we always have to begin and start with the presupposition that God's word is our authority. It is true. It is our authority in all things in faith and practice. So what I'm sharing with you today, again, is not to say that we have to have these things in order for us to believe the Bible. No, I don't believe that's true. But if the Bible is true, then it should reveal to us things in our reality that conform to what's being said in the Scripture. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if we looked around and the things in our world and our reality were in total contradiction to what we read in the Scripture, that would be a massive red flag. That would be a big hindrance, an obstacle to our faith. But the more that you study and the more that you investigate these things, guys, what we find is that everything that we have discovered, historically, archaeologically, scientifically, 100% affirms and confirms and supports God's word. So don't, don't mishear me today. We do stand on the authority of God's word. Jesus said it this way. He said, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth, 100% truth. So again, we don't need these things to necessarily um, validate Scripture, but they do support and uphold Scripture as God's written word and authority. Okay, so it looks like my slides are going to be dark, which I hate that. Um, so if you, I'll read them to you, so obviously you can't read that. Um, so I'm going to walk you through several things today that I have discovered and I think you'll find very, very interesting. Again, in the context of what was happening to the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt and God is leading them to the mountain to give them the commandments and to enter into a covenant with them. So let's first talk about modern archaeology. Modern archaeology continues to validate the historical reliability of the scripture. Modern archaeology, guys, is fascinating to me. They're digging over in the Holy Land constantly. They're digging in Israel. They're digging in Egypt. They're digging in ancient Assyria. They're digging in Iraq. They're digging all over the place. And every time a new archaeological discovery is found, amazingly, it just brings more validation to what we already know and what's already been given to us in the Scripture. Again, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries that was ever made was back in 1947, and it was called the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? You need to get familiar with them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is just one example that just within our generation, there were scrolls discovered. A little Bedouin uh, shepherd was throwing rocks in a cave. He heard some pottery breaking. They go in, they find this massive reservoir of ancient documents dating back some two, three, sometimes 400 years before the life of Jesus Christ. And they begin to compare what they, get, what they had written in these Dead Sea Scrolls with what we have in our modern-day Hebrew Bible, and guess what they found out? They're almost exactly identical. 
without almost any contradiction. No, no contradiction that would, that would change the meaning of the scripture at all, but maybe a few little variances. But 99% of every, in every Hebrew Bible, every Hebrew book in the Bible has been discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, except the book of Esther, in its entirety or at least partially. And they begin to compare them. They're like, okay, well, let's see how much the Bible has changed. Because isn't that one of the arguments that you hear from skeptics? Oh, I can't believe the Bible because it's been translated so many times that you can't believe you don't know what the original said, right? You ever heard that? Oh, by the way, we've, we've, we discovered documents now that predate Christ by two, three, four hundred years. And guess what, guys? The Bible's never changed. It's the same. And so this is why archaeological discoveries are very important, okay? Oh, man. Look at that. So I just want to give you some quotes. I'm not going to read all of these, but just these are quotes from archaeologists who have lived over the years, who have dedicated their lives to digging up old things. That's what they love to do, right? They dig up artifacts. They dig up uh, all kind of different old sites. And I just want, to hear the te- want you to hear some of the testimony of these archaeologists, all right? Dr. Clifford Wilson, he was of the Australian Institute of Archaeologists. He said, I know of no finding in archaeology that properly confirm which is in opposition to the scripture. The Bible is the most accurate history textbook the world has ever seen. Dr. Nelson Gluick, a famous archaeologist, he said, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. You can go on and hear what Dr. Joseph Free said. He's an, uh, he wrote in Archaeology in the Bible. Archaeology has confirmed countless passages which have been rejected by critics in an unhistorical or contradictory to known facts. Yet these discoveries have shown that these, are, uh, these critical charges and attacks against Scripture are wrong and the Bible is trustworthy in every way. Here's what's so interesting. You have critical scholars who study the Bible for their living these are the, you know, the Ph.D. guys, the ultra-intelligent guys. They, they spend their life in a library writing critical papers. Do you know that the majority of scholars today don't even believe that the Bible is true? Imagine that. They study the Bible for their livelihood and then turn around and reject it and don't even believe it's true. Do you know that the majority of Jewish people alive today would say that the Exodus never even happened? They don't even believe the Exodus anymore. They think it's a cool story and maybe there was something that was, you know, there's interest in or there's benefit to knowing about it or whatever. But you know why they reject it? There's no what? Evidence. Where's the evidence from a scientifically driven community or culture? We want to see the proof. We want to see the evidence. And so many of them have just rejected it altogether. And so we see that archaeology and archaeologists as they continue to investigate and dig and study these things, guys, more and more and more, we're not finding things that contradict Scripture. We're finding things that support it. That's very, very important. Okay, let me give you one of the most recent ones. This was discovered just last year, 2021. Interesting. Researchers deciphered a 3,000-year-old curse inscription that was discovered on Mount Ebal. Now, if you don't know where Mount Ebal is, you need to, you need to go back and, and read it. There's two main things that happened on Mount Ebal. When the Israelites were coming in to the promised land, in Deuteronomy 27, Moses instructed the Levites to bring the people of Israel to Mount Ebal and to pronounce blessings and what? Cursings. 
And then later in Joshua 8, Joshua does this again by bringing the Israelites to this mountain and they pronounce all of the blessings for keeping God's commandments and all of the cursings for disobeying God's commandments. And then they discover this artifact and this is what it says. Cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yehovah. You will die cursed, cursed you will surely die, cursed by Yehovah, cursed, cursed, cursed. I think he's trying to get a message across, right? But what we need to understand is that this is the oldest reference to the name of the Lord that's ever been discovered. And it dates back 3,000 years ago. Now here's one of the things that scholars have said for years. Moses could have never written the book of Genesis because the Israelites, the Hebrews, were illiterate, ignorant people back that long ago. Now we have written language but dating back to the time of Joshua and Moses, which proves that they were a literate people and they had a what? They had a language. And so we find these archaeological discoveries that begin to shed light and begin to completely destroy all of the critical arguments against God's word. Now, guys, this, these things are important, again, for you young people, because that's what you're going to hear when you get to college. You're going to hear all the reasons why you can't trust the Bible. I'm here to tell you that there are many reasons why you can trust the Bible. And so now we're talking about the biblical account of the Exodus. As I said, so many people reject it that it's even true, that it ever even happened. And yet today I'm going to show you some compelling evidence that I think is beginning to, um, that God is beginning to shed some light upon to not only help us, Say, you know what, I can, there is evidence all around me and all around us that confirms the scripture. But maybe for those people who have been doubting the historical uh, validity of the Exodus altogether, maybe this will help them begin to wake up and say, wait a minute. You start putting these things together and it makes a really strong case that there is evidence, there is proof that the Exodus really happened. And so again, we're in this series of counting the Omer. As the Israelites were wandering for 40 days, God is leading them to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And so what I want to spend the rest of my time with you today talking about is have we discovered the real Mount Sinai? I believe we have. And I believe it's not the traditional site that many of you may think used to be the real Mount Sinai that you look at on your maps. As a matter of fact, when you look at a map today, you can see the Sinai, what? Peninsula. You, you, and I'll show you here a map in just a second. It's called the what? It's called the Sinai Peninsula because for generations, we were told that what mountain was on that peninsula? Mount Sinai. So the whole area of land got its name from the presupposition that God's mountain, Mount Sinai, was in that land. I don't think it is, and I'm going to show you why. So let's walk through some of these things together, okay? So there's new discoveries now that are, that are challenging the traditional site of Mount Sinai, which is in Egypt. All right, let me show you a map real quick. So again, as I, as I told you, this right here, okay, so you got Egypt, and this is the traditional route of the Exodus, is what we've been told. There's a, there's a little sea up here called the Sea of Reeds. It's really a marshland. It's not very deep. It's just kind of river water that collects into a pool, really shallow water. Well, all the historical scholars say, hey, yeah, they probably crossed somewhere up in here, Sea of Reeds. They went way down here, and this is where God met with them on the mountain. 
And then they went all the way back up into the promised land. So again, Sinai Peninsula right here. This is the Red Sea. It, it breaks off into two fingers. You got one finger on the right, one finger on the left. Okay. How did this place, there's a mountain here that has traditionally been uh, identified as Mount Sinai. Does anybody know how that happened? I'll tell you. There was a woman who was named Helena. She was the mother of the emperor of Rome. Does anybody know what his name was? Constantine. So Constantine apparently had a conversion experience. That's debatable. I'm not here to talk about that. But his mother apparently adopted Christianity and became fascinated with the history. And so she went on a tour to the Holy Land. Now, St. Helena... Constantine's mother, she did erect Roman, uh, whatever, churches or Roman uh, places of identification at two places in the Holy Land. One was where Jesus supposedly was born in Bethlehem, okay? And the other was a, was a church there on, Mount, on the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended into heaven. But I've heard my whole life that it was Helena, Constantine's mother, who also came to this region and determined, hey, this is where the real Mount Sinai is. But you know what? Historically, there's no record that she ever even went there. Not at all. But it's been attributed to her. So you got to kind of start digging and say, well, how did it end up that way? So, guys, we don't know exactly when and how all of the, you know, components came together to where this ended up being St. Catherine's Cathedral, and you have a monastery here, and it was the uh, traditional site of Mount Sinai. But it wasn't, I don't think it was even Constantine's mother, Helena, who was there, because we have no record of her even visiting the area. So, basically, you just kind of have a few broken traditions that have told us, hey, that's where Moses led the people on the mountain but we don't have any real evidence okay keep that in mind so the next thing I want to share with you is that there are now there's both biblical and archaeological evidence and it's important that we stress that both biblical and archaeological evidence that now overwhelmingly supports that the real Mount Sinai guys is not it's not here in Egypt but it's actually here in modern-day Saudi Arabia. Interesting. We say, well, what, what's the evidence for that? What's the evidence? Well, let's look at the archaeological evidence first. Now, here's what I want you to do as I go through these things, okay? Any one of these things in and of themselves is not enough to convince me, okay? But when you put every single one of these pieces together, you begin to start saying, you know what, how... How many coincidences, in other words, if all of these things are just random coincidences, then that would be a hard stretch to believe. But really what it's doing is it's saying, you know what, there is evidence, there's archaeological evidence that maybe we've been looking in the wrong place all along. Maybe the real place of God's mountain, the holy mountain, Mount Sinai, has always been right there in that desert of Saudi Arabia. And for generations... We didn't know it, and it just so happens in this day and in this generation, we're beginning to rediscover the truth that the exodus was real, that the covenant that was made at Sinai was real, and that everything in the scripture is true. So let's take a look. So I'm going to give you some proofs. The first proof today is that when you read the scripture, 
I know you can't see that, guys. I'm sorry. I don't know how my, my text got dark. But anyway, if you read the scripture, Mount Sinai is in the ancient land of Midian. Now, when you saw the intro video, did, did, I don't know if y'all caught this, but it says 40 different times throughout the Exodus story that the children of Israel came out of Egypt. Let me back up. Whoops. Where am I at? Let me just make sure you see. This is Egypt. All right, this is Egypt, but so is this. This is still Egypt. The Exodus says the people of Israel came out of what? So they, they were not in Egypt anymore when they got to the mountain, okay? Keep that in mind, okay? And so what we're seeing here is that the, the, the real Mount Sinai, according to the scripture, is in the land of Midian. Now, here's, a, here's another map, okay? Again, Egypt here. This is where the traditional Mount Sinai is. This is ancient Midian, ancient Midian, and this is Jabal Alaz, which is the mountain of Moses or God's holy mountain, according to the Muslim tradition. And we're going to see why that's important in just a second. All right, so let's look at the scripture. Oh, man, that's frustrating. All right, you guys just kind of take my word for it. Exodus 2. Listen to this. He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Okay, so this is Moses murdered an Egyptian, right? He's got to get out. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And now the priest of Midian, that we knew, know is his name was Jethro, had seven daughters. And they came to draw water. And we know the rest of the story. Moses met his future bride there in Midian. So again, we see Moses left Egypt and went where? He went to Midian. All right. The next verse is Exodus 3, 1, 2. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. All right, let me back up. Now watch. I want to show you something. Come on, man. All right, look at this. All right. So if Moses went to Midian and he stayed with Jethro for 40 years, it says that he was tending the sheep for Jethro, right? He became a shepherd. And then it said he took the shepherd and he went to the backside of the desert and he went to the mountain of God. Are you trying to tell me that Moses left here with his sheep and went all the way up here? And all the way down here and met with God here some 500 miles? Does that make a lot of sense? Not at all. It would make much more sense if the mountain of God was pretty much in close proximity to the ancient place of what? Of Midian. Because a shepherd would take his sheep some 10, sometimes 20 miles away to find pasture for them. And so we see that the land of Midian is important in understanding where the real Mount Sinai is. These are called the caves of Jethro. This is uh, ancient Midian. And so you see that there's this unique architecture that's seen also in Petra, Jordan. And when you go there, the people, the Muslims who live there, they say this is the, these, these are the caves of Jethro. They say this is the well of Moses. Ancient Muslim tradition affirms that this is where Moses and Jethro lived in these ancient days. This is Jethro's cave. It's, a, it's a believed that Jethro was buried in this ancient land of Saudi Arabia, which is ancient Midian, okay? So again, just a little bit of archaeological evidence. 
Now, is that enough to say that that's where the real Mount Sinai is? Maybe not. Let's look at proof number two. The Red Sea crossing. Okay, the Red Sea crossing. So here's another map. So now we begin to look a little bit closer. And I know you guys, you, you probably feel like you're in like history class, right? Geography class. But this is important. All right, now here's, now remember the first map said, hey, they crossed this little sea of reeds and they went down here to, to traditional Mount Sinai. But if you begin to pay attention to what really happened, they more than likely left here, went through Sukkot, which we know they did that. They probably drove it here, all the way down here, and this is where they crossed the Red Sea. And this is the mountain of Moses, or the real Mount Sinai. So you see here the great Red Sea crossing. All right, so let me, let me read to you another scripture. Listen to what it says. The Israelites were running from Pharaoh. They're in a mountainous region. They get to the edge of the sea. They're trapped. Look at what it says. They were, well, you can't see what it says. I'm going to read it to you. They are encamped by the sea directly opposite Baal Safan. And Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering in the land in confusion and they are hemmed in by the wilderness. What does that mean? So God led the Israelites to a specific place where they were stuck on purpose between a what? Rock and a hard place. They had nowhere else to go. They had a sea in front of them, and they had mountains all around them. Now, look at this. This, guys, is the, what I believe the real uh, site of the Red Sea crossing. And look at this. This is where the Israelites would have come in one of this old, uh, it's old riverbed that runs through the mountains. And they would have come out of the mountain right here onto this huge beach, which is well sufficient to hold millions of people. Because we know that millions of people came out of Egypt. And so you imagine, as everybody's coming out of the mountain, they all flood out onto the bank. Where are they going to go? They got water in front of them, and what do they have around them? Mountains all around them. Now you have Pharaoh's army following them down here, and guys, it looked like it was going to be a slaughter because Pharaoh had them trapped. The ironic thing is, is that God actually set a what? He set a trap for Pharaoh, Okay. And so we see, and, and again, this is all stuff that you can go back and investigate uh, a little bit more. Interestingly, when people began investigating this, there was a massive pillar that was supposedly erected by King Solomon in his day. And it said that this was the traditional site of the Red Sea crossing. And when you get on the other side over here, there was also, um, I'm sorry, I don't know if that's the other side, but there was also another pillar that was said to be the traditional Red Sea crossing. So you had two pillars, one in uh, um, Egypt and one in Saudi Arabia that said this is where the Israelites crossed the sea. So again, there, there's so much I can't share with you today, but I do want to try to tell you that these proofs are very interesting, okay? And again, this sea is much more likely where God would have drowned Pharaoh's army, okay? Because it always talks about the, the army was drowned in the depths, of the sea. So as God parted the waters, think about it, the children of Israel walked down the trench on dry ground, walked back up like they were being baptized in the water, came back up on the other side, and then Pharaoh's army followed them in. And when they got into the center, what happened? The walls collapsed and he killed them all. Again, setting a trap. So this is a very traditional site. Now, I will say this. I can't validate this, but some of the early researchers who believe this was the real Red Sea crossing site apparently have done some deep sea diving in the area, and they believe they have found what is to be seen as chariot wheels. 
all over the place. Now listen, I don't, I I don't want to say I validate that 100% because I haven't investigated it enough, but I've seen some pictures that look pretty convincing. Now they're covered in coral now because they've probably been there for thousands, you know, however many thousands of years, but nonetheless, they do resemble chariot wheels. But you can take that for what it's worth. But that's not it. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Our third proof is that we have the split rock of Horeb. Now, just imagine in your mind for a second what you would picture this massive rock to look like. Now, what's the split rock? Remember, the children of Israel grumbling against Moses again. He brings them out into the wilderness. They're thirsty. They don't have enough water to drink. Guys, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people and their livestock. Dying of thirst. God, the Lord tells Moses, he said, I'm going to go stand before the rock. And I want you to do what? Strike the rock and I'm going to let water come out. And so the people will have something to drink. Now, what what does that look like in your mind? Does it look like something like this? Oh, by the way, guess where this is? Just a few miles from the what I believe is the real Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. This is the split rock of Horeb. Now, just before you think that's a small rock, that thing's almost over 60 feet tall. Let me show you a picture. Look at those people standing there in the middle of it. This is no small rock. And it is a, it is a um, very signature, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not milestone, but it's a Landmark, thank you. It's a very signature landmark. If you're wandering out in the desert and somebody says, hey, meet me at the rock, guess what? Everybody knows what rock you're talking about because it stands out above everything else. And what's interesting, too, is that if you go and and investigate, and I've looked at at some video and pictures, is that right there at the mouth of the split, guess what there's evidence of? Water erosion. In the middle of the desert, it looks like a river flowed right out of that rock. Now, you can't tell me, guys. Now, you're starting to put some of these pieces together. Could this really be the split rock of Horeb? Okay. Now, look at this map. Just to show you again, I know you guys are tired of looking at maps. But this is where that rock is. And this is where Mount Sinai is. Very, very close to one another. Okay. So, this is in the very close proximity. Now, what are the chances that the, that the, the Mount Sinai that, that was been uh, passed down from generations in the Muslim community and the Jewish community, what are the chances that there's also a massive rock there with water erosion that looks like it's been split right down the middle? I don't know. Is that a coincidence? I think not. And so we know that this is more evidence that perhaps this could be the real Mount Sinai. Well, let's take a look at the mountain itself. Proof number four. The mountain that we've talked about in Saudi Arabia is called Jabal al-Laws, okay? That's just what they call it. The, the, the natives there have named it. Many of them call it the mountain of Moses. If you were to go to Saudi Arabia there and you were to ask the people, hey, what's the name of that mountain? They would say, that's the mountain of Moses. We've always known that. That's where Moses met God on the mountain. Interesting, right? So look at the top of the mountain. This is a picture of the mountain of Moses, or what I believe is the real Mount Sinai. What do you notice about the top of it? That's not a shadow. That's not a shadow. The top of the mountain is what? It's black. It looks like maybe something like what? It burned or something. What do we read in the Exodus account? What happened when God came down to, top, to the top of the mountain? He came down in what? 
in fire. Now, there's people that say, oh, that's just a different rock formation. But guys, if you go in this whole area, the rest of the mountains look normal, but it just so happens that the top of this mountain unusually looks like it has been caught on fire. This is the mountain of Moses, according to the tradition there in Saudi Arabia. Okay, well, that's another thing. Just put that on the list. Is that, is that another coincidence? I, I don't know. Then you have this. Down at the base of the mountain, clearly somebody built something. This is a traditional altar. Do you see? You see these little lanes right here? What would they, would, what would they send through these lanes? Cattle. Sheep. Why would they do that? They'd start them out here, and they'd walk them through here, and they don't want the sheep to see what's happening here because what is it, what's happening there? They're killing, they're sacrificing the animals. So they don't want to scare the animals. So they had to walk them through these columns to make sure that they wouldn't freak out and try to run away. And by the time they would get up here, it's too late. Oh, by the way, they're going to start sacrificing the animals. And in the scripture, as you see, listen to this. All the words in, in uh, Exodus 24, verse 4, listen. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And there were 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent the young men who offered burnt offerings there. So there is an altar here, clearly, that somebody built. Now, was it Moses? I don't know. Is it another coincidence? Mm, I don't think so. Then you have these things. There's these pillars all around the very same location. Very clearly, somebody cut these things. This is not a natural rock formation. Could these be the 12 pillars that he set up to the children of Israel? I can't say that for sure, but it sure does look interesting to me. Now, let's continue. I'm not finished yet. Listen, guys, this gets even better. When the Lord took the Israelites to the foot of the mountain, he told them, he said, listen, do not let anyone, none of your livestock, none of your people, don't let them touch the what? He said, if anybody touches the mountain, he's to be stoned to death or, does anybody know what else they told him to do? Or you're to shoot them with arrows. Guys, there were boundaries put up around the mountain. God's doing it for the people's own protection. He's saying, listen, don't let them come up on the mountain because they can. It's a holy mountain. They're not going to be able to live. Now, you go around this area of the real Mount Sinai and you see, you see petroglyphs like this. People shooting what? Is that another coincidence? Maybe they drew these on the rocks to remind and warn the people, don't go, don't go past this point or you're going to be what? Shot through with arrows. Is that another coincidence? Maybe so. Let's move on. Now we have the next proof, which is the golden calf. We know what happened as Moses was up on the mountain, 40 days and 40 nights. The people grow impatient. They convince Aaron somehow to form a golden calf out of gold, and they go ahead and they start worshiping another god in the middle of their marriage ceremony. Man, tragic. Tragic time, right? Well, let's go ahead and investigate further. What do we find on the rocks around this mountain? You see these things everywhere. Now, I'm not a very smart person, but a three-year-old can point that out. What is it? It's a bull or a calf. And guys, I'm telling you, these things are everywhere. Now, in Egypt, this was a deity that the Egyptians worshipped. And these would be icons and petroglyphs that the Egyptians would draw on their um, temples and pyramids. So somebody did the same thing on these mountains. Look at this. 
people standing underneath the bull, like they're holding the bull up, holding the tail of the bull. The, and again, these are things that are not just random. They're all over the place in this, in this region, okay? Is that another coincidence? Maybe. I think it's further proof and further evidence that what we're looking at, guys, is very likely to be the real Mount Sinai. Who else went to Mount Sinai? Anybody remember Elijah? You know, he took his own trip there. Where did, where did Elijah end up on the mountain? In a what? So there has to be at least a prominent cave on the side of the mountain. Oh, by the way, there's a prominent cave on the side of the mountain. This is the, the picture of the cave here, right here on what we would now consider the real Mount Sinai. And if you want to see a picture of it from the, out, from the inside looking out, that's what it would have looked like. Just another coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. But I do believe that you start putting these things together and you begin to see that maybe, guys, we've been looking in the wrong place all along. But there's one more proof that I want to share with you before we go. And it comes from the Apostle Paul. Did you know that Paul tells us where Mount Sinai is? Sure does. So I'm going to read it to you. Galatians 1. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. He said, When God set me apart before I was born, he called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. Why would Paul go to Arabia? What's in Arabia? Mount Sinai. Because that's where Moses met God on the mountain. That's where Elijah met God on the mountain. And apparently that's where Paul met Jesus. He went down to the very same place on the mountain in Arabia. And had direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you thought that was not enough, in Galatians chapter 4, listen to what it says. Paul is writing, he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. He's talking about these two women, Hagar and uh, Sarah. He says, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's Galatians 4.25. Paul tells us that Mount Sinai is not in Egypt, but it's where? It's in Arabia. So guys, as, as you think about all of these things that I've shared with you today, I want to ask you just a question. Are all of these things coincidence? Or if you begin to really, now here's the thing, don't take my word for it. That's why I'm, I love apologetics. You need to go and investigate it for yourself. But my question to you today is, is you take one proof of evidence after another, after another, the place where they crossed the sea, the split rock of Horeb, the cave of Elijah, the altar at the foot of the mountain, the, the, the petroglyphs on the rocks of people shooting arrows and the golden calf. You've got the burnt, the, the top of the mountain that looks like it's been burnt. And there's, there's more evidence. If you're interested in this, you can read. There's a book called from Joel Richardson called Mount Sinai in Arabia, and he goes into all the detail about this, if you're interested in this, but I, I'm, I'm putting this out there before you just to, just to give you a, an example of how when we read the scriptures, we can believe that God's word is what? It is true. It is true. 
And I think that this is going to be one of the great archaeological discoveries that begins to come out in Christendom that's going to bring amazing glory to God. Did you know that there are Christian groups that are now taking tours to Saudi Arabia to go visit the mountain? Did you know that you could go? You can go. Um, if you want information about that, I can let you know. Joel Richardson has led like three tours now. Now, now let's back up. Did you know just about 10 years ago, no American was even allowed in the country? You couldn't get into Saudi Arabia unless you had a, a working green pass or a green card or whatever. Today, the Saudi government has begun to open this back up because they, you know why, they sense a little what? A little tourism money, right? That's fine. But let's let people start going there and start to find out for themselves. Joel Richardson, who I, I trust and I think he's a great teacher, he said that he was skeptical. He went on his first trip. He walked to the base of the mountain. He climbed all the way up to the top. He said that God spoke to him in such a profound, he said it was one of the most amazing spiritual experiences he's ever had in his life. And he knew for a fact that he was standing at the real Mount Sinai. So what do we do with all this? As we close out, since my screen's all messed up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you what I shared with you at the beginning. Number one, you can trust God's word. You can trust God's heart. You can believe that his word is true. And so anytime your faith is challenged, guys, I promise you the answers are there. Don't let people try to dissuade you and, and discourage you and attack your faith. Because, guys, I'm telling you, the answers are there. God is not scared. God, God, God isn't worried about people trying to attack his word. He knows that the word is true. We need to believe that the word is true. But here's the last thing. All this stuff is great, and it's good, and it's important, and it's interesting. And I think you should look into it. But I'm going to say what I said at the beginning. What's the greatest evidence right now? that the world will probably ever see because they don't, they're not interested in this. They may not even know about it or even care. But who are they going to see? They're going to see us. They're going to see you and me. They're going to see people who forgive when nobody else will. They're going to see people who are content and full of joy when the rest of the world is distraught. They're going to, they're going to see people who love others unconditionally when there's no reason with no expectation in of anything in what in return they're going to see people who are at peace in the midst of difficulties and suffering and struggle they're going to say how is it that you have so much peace in your heart how is it that you can handle this tragic situation and not just be completely overwhelmed and in despair and it's because we have what the rest of the world does not have we have the living Christ living where in us so that we let our light shine before men so that they would see our good deeds. They would see something different in us. And that they would glorify our Father where? In heaven. Just like this evidence right here, I think it's going to lead to glorify God ultimately in the end. Our lives every single day should be leading other people to glorify who? To glorify God. Just like we sang a little bit earlier, right? I see the evidence all around us. Right? It's all over my life. All over my life. So I'm going to ask our praise team to come up as we close. And we're just going to sing one more song today, guys. And as we sing, I just want to ask you to stop for a moment, look into your heart, 
Spend a little bit of time asking God to, to, to search you, to seek you, examine yourself, and just ask yourself. Listen, this is important. Ask yourself this question. And I think it's a valid question. If you were the only person in the world that somebody else would ever know to represent Jesus Christ, what kind of a witness would you be? What would other people think of Jesus based on looking at you, listening to you, watching you and me? That's a sobering question, isn't it? I think every one of us need to ask ourselves that question. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. There's no other reason why you're still alive today. The day that you stop being a witness for the Lord Jesus or he no longer needs you or wants you to be a witness is the day that you what? It's the day that your life is over. There's no other point and purpose to live. Guys, this is, this is where we are in a culture that is filled with immorality and profanity and doubt and evil and violence and all of the sin that we see in our culture and our world today, guys. We are the ones who are to shine the light the brightest. That's what I want to want you to walk away with today. Amen? All right. As I pray, I want you to think about those things. Heavenly Father, would you bow with me? I want to thank you for your goodness, your graciousness. And I thank you that there is evidence, Lord, that, that you, you gave us a word that is true. And, Father, you gave us a word that is um, believable. Lord, not just because somebody says it, but because of who you are, your testimony, your witness, God. You are forever faithful and forever true. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider who we are and how we are to live before men, that we would bring you the glory through the light that shines through us to others and the love that we share more than anything else, a transforming love, an unconditional love, a Christ-like love that is seen, Lord, in how we live and how we treat others. So, Father, may you be the evidence in our life, and all God's people said.